As mentioned last hour, as I began, I've been looking forward to this particular week and the privilege that we have of being together. I truly have loved and appreciated this church from a distance, various ways and various times in the last few days and weeks to interact with the eldership and to have information of preparation and so forth. It's been impressive. And certainly, one thing that you may or may not know Adam Swallows and his good family and I have had a very special relationship over the last few years. Got to know him as a result of the work that he helped and partnered with as far as the Ready Reference book and the app that is made available. And I haven't met him face to face, didn't have a clue what he looked like until this morning. And it was a joy to get to know he and his family. Uh, See, do I want to say that he was more handsome or less handsome than I thought he was going to be based on his voice? I'm just picking at him right now, just having fun. My dad worked in this area, Allen's and Lafayette and out in the Livingston area in this direction of the state of Tennessee for many years. Dad has now been deceased for almost 40 years. But something that I was sitting there on the front pew a moment ago thinking about I want to tell a story about my dad. I keep in mind, this dates back about 80 years. So think of it economy-wise. But my dad would get up on Sunday morning, lived in Warren County in McMinnville, and he and my Uncle Fred, Fred had the only car in the family, and they'd get up and they'd drive a couple of hours to get to the place where dad was going to preach that Sunday. This Sunday morning, they got up and they drove and they went there and dad, you know, preached the sermon. At the end of the sermon, one of the brethren came up to him and said, Brother Harold, thank you so much for coming. Opened his side pocket and said, we've decided to give you the entire contribution today. Dad thanked him. He and Uncle Fred got in the car, drove home, got home, went inside, took off his only suit that he owned at that time, happened to think of the money, reached in there, pulled it out, laid it out there on the bed, and it was 85 cents. Dad had put in 50 cents. My Uncle Fred was the monkey in the family, and my Uncle Fred said, Huh, Harold, if you'd have put in more, you'd have got out more. I want you to know that I'm going to put in everything that I can for this to be a successful meeting. I'm thankful for your presence today and hope that you'll be back Hope you'll encourage others to come. We're going to be talking about some things that are extremely eternity-determining, important, not because I'm the speaker. Folks, I'm just going to tell you bluntly, I'm just a newspaper carrier. I'm just a good news bearer. I'm just a servant. I'm nothing special at all. And you've made me feel special, but don't, because we're all servants in the kingdom of God. My, my job, my work my challenge this week is to open the beautiful pages of this great and wonderful book and draw us nearer to the Christ and have our eyes focused more determined than ever before on that heavenly home. But we live in a wicked world. We live in a time and age in which it is difficult to be a Christian. And even by the help of PowerPoint, we're going to talk about just momentarily about the enemy that we face. And we recognize that indeed there are various images that we have in our mind. 
we had this on a little bit earlier. One of the little small children said, ooh, that's scary. Well, by man's depiction, we don't know what the devil looks like. But oftentimes he has horns and oftentimes he has a red suit and all kinds of things that we might have. But we do know that he is alive, he is powerful, and he wants you to be lost. The devil is real. And the devil does not want you to listen to the gospel. The devil does not want you to obey God. The devil wants you to live in hell with him forever. That's evil. That's wrong. But what I want us to do is to emphasize the fact that at times the devil looks good. He's actually described in, in Scripture as the wolf in sheep's clothing. In other words, he may appear like a sheep, but inwardly he's a ravening wolf. And we need to understand that in our life, the things that sometimes are certain versus uncertain... And in spiritual matters, a lot of times, it is uncertain, doubt and confusion. So many times we get to the point that we think in terms of can peace and genuine happiness even be possible? Can I know the truth? Can I please God with confidence? Can I absolutely know that I'm saved? Can I be right in the sight of God? What church should I go to? Man tells me the church of my choice. Is that all right with God? I've determined in recent years, not that it's any great revelation of mine, but there's a problem with our preaching today, I'm afraid. I trust that that's not the case in this pulpit. But in so many places in the world today, there, there's no distinctiveness. There's no absolute truth being taught. It's more of get along and uh, take whatever you want and be whatever you want. And anything like that is fine. But the Bible doesn't say that. The Bible, in fact, tells us that there is a place of refuge, a place of safety. There is that place that we must be in order to make sure that we are enjoying the blessings that God desires from us. That we are literally in that particular specified place. And unless we are, we're not going to be able to have that which we might otherwise think. What I mean by that is this. There's a lot of people that think that they're right. There are many people that are religious. Cornelius was a man, Acts chapter 10, that was religious. But he was commanded to be baptized, Acts chapter 10 verse 48. Saul of Tarsus was a religious man, a devout man. He kept the law and as much as anybody possibly could. But on the road to Damascus, he learned that that wasn't the way that he should be going. It is possible for us to be a good person, a religious person, even involved in doing good works and not be pleasing to God. You say, how can that be? By the very examples that we've given... And by the way that the devil is convincing us to go this, do that, be this way, such exist. I want us to look in the Bible at a few examples of the place of safety. I personally think it is a great 
idea of seeing where God has taken place, taken care of man, and the places that he specified, and the result of that. Let's look at number one. First of all, we want to talk about the book of Genesis. The good brother read for us a moment ago in Genesis chapter 6. The world had become so evil at that particular time. It was a matter in which God literally was sorry that he had even created man because of the world being so evil. But Noah, you see, was righteous. Sidebar thought. We learn from that, if we go no further, that indeed it's possible to be right in God's sight, righteous in God's sight, even when the whole world around us is evil. And at times we may feel that very way, that indeed we are surrounded by nothing but wrong and evil and sin. But God found grace. Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. God's grace was offered to Noah and God warned him in Hebrews chapter 6 of uh, chapter 11 and verse 7 by faith Noah being warned of God of things not seen as yet moved with fear and built an ark to the saving of his family in the Old Testament we read about it in Genesis 6 7 and 8 in the New Testament we find reference to it how that Noah heard from God, was warned of God, and built an ark because God told him there's going to be a pending flood. In Genesis chapter 6 and verse 22, we find an interesting statement. Thus did Noah, according to all that God commanded him. Noah could have said, okay, I know God is God, and I know God has said this, but, you know, I just don't think it's possible. Noah could have said, well, I see the evil and the wickedness, and I don't blame God at all for that, but, I mean, you know, I don't think God's power. Uh, surely not. But Noah believed God. But belief alone is not enough. It was a matter in which Noah did what God said, and as a result, Noah and his family were saved from that flood. But as we look at all of these particular things, let's notice one more thing. And I'm hitting the wrong button here. You're supposed to be going forward, not backward. I've been known as a backward preacher at times. Let me now look at it this way. When we talk about Noah's salvation, we can look at it from the standpoint of how God could have saved him. God is all-powerful. God can do whatever he wants. And God could have saved him any way. He wasn't limited to the ark and the flood way. In fact, we could even notice that once, though, God had specified this way, once God had said, this is what's going to happen, once God had said, this is what I command you to do, once God had said that, it was up to Noah then to either do or not do what God said. Because God had specified this, he could have placed him in a various way. He could have saved him in various ways. He could have specified various things. But what God placed upon Noah was these specifications. You build me an ark. You make it out of gopher wood, 300 cubits long, 50 cubits wide, 30 cubits high. And Noah could either then comply and be saved, he and his family, or reject and be destroyed. 
Now, a few boys and girls up here right before our worship started, we were talking about some things about Noah and the ark and things of that nature. And the little boys and girls understood it. Here's what God said. And Noah did it, they said. That's exactly right. We learn from that concerning the fact that the place of safety was in the ark. I've often thought to myself, what took place after God closed the door, knowing them was already in the ark, God closed the door, and the floods from below and above began to cover the face of the earth. And the people that had watched Noah for over a hundred years build that ark. Knowing humans the way we do, they dare, I dare say they made fun of him. What's that man doing? What's that man building? He's crazy, isn't he? I mean, the very idea says there's going to be a flood. But now all of a sudden, very likely those same people are banging on the side of the ark, screaming for their life. Let us in. Please let us in. According to Hebrews chapter 11, Noah was a preacher of righteousness during that time. He had pled for the world. He had told them exactly what was going to take place. He had told them to repent from your sins, to turn from that, to get out of that, to come to God. God took care of Noah and his family. And it was inside the ark and the only place of safety was inside the ark. Let's look at number two. This time let's talk about the book of Exodus and a house. The Passover is what we're talking about. And what we find here is Israel in Exodus chapter 12 and Egyptian bondage. They've been in bondage for over 400 years, 430 to be exact. And Moses is selected by God to lead the people of God and to go before Pharaoh and say, let my people go. Pharaoh didn't hear and didn't listen, didn't want to do that. And as a result, the plagues came upon Israel, upon all the land. Pharaoh still refused time after time, nine of them all together until the final climactic tenth plague. And that was to be the death of the firstborn throughout the land. Can you imagine? Israel was offered deliverance from that. The children of Israel that were the people of God had been in bondage and had pled out, had begged God to, for deliverance and now that had been made possible. But that which was about to come, but they were given very special, specific instruction. And it was rigid instructions in fact. They were told to take the Paschal lamb. They were to kill it a certain way, to use the blood to put on the doorpost. They were to go inside the ark after eating and eat all the lamb. The blood was to be put on the doorpost and the lintel outside the house. And they were not to go out of the house. And what took place could have been otherwise. God could have done it another way. 
Have you ever thought about the fact that indeed God could have told them and, and all the various things that he actually specified, God could have specified houses and particularly not necessarily with the blood sealed on the doorpost, but it was a matter in which man, having been told exactly what to do, how to eat the lamb, how to put the blood on the doorpost, man then was powerless. And those that were honest and sincere in all of the various things that they might have thought and concoctions they might have come up with and said, well, you know, God's going to make an exception out of me. I've been trying to do this and I've been trying to do... It really didn't matter. The truth of the matter is at that time, that particular night, God was not limited, but he specified that way, he chose that way, and when he did exactly, God having specified, Israel's faith was the determining factor. Whether or not they did what God had specified was the determining factor of whether their firstborn died that night. The only place of safety was in the house with blood on the doorpost. And that night, the death of the firstborn of so many children. Can you imagine the wailing, the grieving? My wife and I have been married almost 54 years. 52 years ago, Stephanie Michelle was born in January. And she died in March. My wife and I miss her to this day. I know how we cried. I know how it hurt. I know how it still hurts. I can't imagine throughout the land and all the houses where there was no blood on the doorpost, the, the weeping and grieving. But you see, God had made a way to, of escape. God had given them a place of safety. God had made a way by which they, their, their firstborn would not die. But they had to do what God said. They had to follow it exactly. They had to go into the house after following it exactly and stay in the house. And their firstborn would not die. Number three. Let's talk about certain cities. Well, not elaborate in a great deal, but we can make mention of the fact that these cities were very extremely specific. They were called cities of refuge. In other words, Israel, that land of promise, and the law at that particular time was developed where it would protect one that would have been guilty of what we might call involuntary manslaughter. Someone died, but it wasn't intended, and as a result, they were protected from the avenger the one that wanted to make things right, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, as it were. And six cities were selected. And these that were guilty of that particular crime could go to one of those six cities. 
flee there. I mean, literally go there to get away from the avenger. And it was a matter, though, according to the law, that if they left that city, they became fair game again. As long as they were in that one of those cities, not just the city of their choice. They had to literally go to the place where God had specified in order to be free from the avenger. The bottom line truth was that was the place of safety for the one guilty of that crime. They were safe there. They would not be required to pay the price, the ultimate price, the death of themselves. But it was only in that city. Do we see a pattern here? Let's go to one more. Let's look at the idea of this time a place and it's in a ship. In Acts chapter 27, we read about the Apostle Paul and how that he's in a ship with the disciples. Paul is being taken prisoner to Jerusalem to be tried, transferred to Caesarea. He's on a voyage at this particular time near the island of Melita, and a great storm arises. I think it was even maybe more than the one I tried to drive in yesterday. It was a big storm yesterday, but a storm literally threatened their lives, and the sailors thought that they were going to die. Many of them seasoned mariners, no doubt, and they thought that, all right, we'll throw things overboard. We'll try to do what we can do. But that didn't help. They prayed, but it didn't seem like that it satisfied with them. And they were at a point where they were about to literally jump overboard, thinking that what they could do was make it ashore, and that was about the only way that they could survive. But look here. There stood by me that night, Paul said, an angel of God whose I am and whom I serve, and the angel told me, fear not, Paul. Don't be afraid. Thou must be brought before Caesar. In other words, you're going to make it to your destination. God has given thee all them that sail with thee even a safe passage. Now these sailors, mariners, heard that. Well, that didn't make sense. I mean... How's that going to get us through this storm? I mean, you're telling me that an angel, a ghost-like person, told you something and you're going to be able to make it? Exactly right. You see, God promised safety as long as they were in the ship. It was a matter in which the place of safety was there. They tried to flee, some of them even after hearing that, but Paul warned them again, except you abide in the ship, you cannot be saved. Again, we come back with the idea of God could have done it various ways. But once you see God specified it, after God's terms were made known to the people, they had no choice in the matter. They either stayed in the ship, the place of safety, and reached their destination through the storm, or else they would die. The place of safety was in the ship. Let's transition now to us today. As we look at these things that we have found so far, safety has been in the ark, in the house, in the city, in the ship. But as we look at ourselves, 
Where is that place of safety? We need to ask the question on the basis of literally what we today find ourselves according to this book. It doesn't matter what the majority feel. It doesn't matter what maybe our parents have taught. It doesn't matter what my, where my best friends go to church. And all of those things oftentimes determine what I do. But what matters is what does God say about it. In Ephesians 1 and verse 3, we're, talk, we're taught about all spiritual blessings. And that all spiritual blessings are in Christ, in the church. We are told that the spiritual blessings, forgiveness and redemption of sins and sanctification, justification and redemption, all of those powerful, exciting words that tell me that even though I'm a sinner and I'm lost in my sins, but I can have forgiveness, I can be cleansed. Just like Paul told the Corinthian brethren. Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, I mean, you were evil people. You were involved in a lot of sinful things, but you have been washed. You've been cleansed. You've been washed by the blood of the Lamb in the church today. We can read, for an example, Paul's word, words to Timothy. In 2 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 10, that's salvation. Very simply, he says, you may obtain the salvation which is in Jesus Christ. Salvation is not in a religion of man. Salvation is not just being good. Salvation is not being a good husband, a good father, a good citizen, a good employee. All of these things may be treasured and certainly worthy of mention. But it is most important that we be in Jesus Christ. Man's salvation, God could have done it in various ways. God could have actually specified something besides hear, believe, repent, confess, and be baptized. God could have told him anything, but once God specified, in the same way concerning the ark, in the same way concerning the house, in the same way concerning the cities, in the same way concerning the ship, once God said it, man was restricted. Man could either accept God's specifications or reject it. Man could either be saved or be lost. Because if we do a further study in the Bible concerning the church where salvation is found, we find that Christ is the builder. We find that Christ is the head of the church. We find that Christ is the one that purchased the church. We find that Jesus is the Savior of the body. All of these things indicate the idea of that one location in Christ, in His church, the church of Jesus Christ, not the church of man, not the church of various religions, not the church of anyone else, or the church of anybody's choice. Somebody says, why do you call it the church of Christ? Good question. The answer is very simply, it's his. He bought it. He paid for it. He's the head of it. On my wrist right now, I've got a watch. I could say that's Paul's watch. Paul bought it. Paul paid for it. It's Paul's watch. Or I might say it's the watch of Paul. And the same is true with Christ and his church. It is not a professional name. It is not a formal name. It is an indication of possession. 
It is the church of Christ. You see, he's the builder, the head, the purchaser, and the savior of that body. And that's where salvation is found. That's exactly what we must do in order to please him. And in that, when I do that, I become a new creature in Christ, in the church. I am that new creature when I enter into Christ. There has never been a new creature but what has been born into that body spiritually. And there's never been a new creature out of Christ. Those things are important. They may seem to be just cosmetic, but it's not. The truth of the matter is I need to also understand that I have been separated from Christ because of my sins. Isaiah 59 verses 1 and 2. Sin separates us from God. But I can be reconciled to God and I find that reconciliation in the church. It is only in Jesus Christ where I can be brought back. The blood of Christ cleanses me initially when I obey the gospel and keeps me cleansed as I walk in the light. Being in Jesus Christ also means I have security. Uh, there's no condemnation to those that are in Christ. There's nothing that can separate me from Christ. I can cast all of my cares upon Him. He cares for me. And Christ told us in the latter part of His earthly ministry, before He ascended back into heaven, Lo, I'm with you all way, even to the end of the world. When I look at the Bible, I can also know that I can rejoice. Rejoicing is only found in Christ. It's the only place, in fact. The Bible tells me I can be complete, I can have victory, I can be blessed, and the mansion is prepared for me all because I am in Jesus Christ and no other salvation is found outside of Christ. So we close the lesson very simply by saying, based upon an examination of this book, not what you think, not what I think, none of that matters. Where are we? Are we in the place of safety? Are we in the place that Jesus Christ made possible by his death? That God made possible by the gift of his son? By the plan that was developed before even the world began? Am I in the place of safety where all blessings are found? But friends, it depends. It all hinges on the key phrase that we found in Genesis. Thus did Noah. As we find in Exodus, they put the blood on the doorpost. As we found also in the cities and also the ship, it comes down to whether or not they did what God Required. In our world today, we are a little bit more arrogant. Sometimes we say, I don't want to do what anybody tells me to do. I want to do what I want to do. Spiritually, we either submit ourselves to the will of God and do exactly what God the Father has specified or will be lost. Jesus' words found in Matthew 7 and verse 21. Not everyone that saith unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven, but he that doeth the will 
of the Father. Have you done that? We're either in one of three categories. We are one that has never obeyed the gospel, or we've obeyed the gospel but have fallen away, or we're saved in Jesus Christ at this moment. Where are you? We're going to sing in just a moment a song of encouragement, not by tradition, but for exhortation. And if there's any, I don't know you. I do not know those that are faithful, those that are not, those that are members or those that are not. But as a messenger, a good news bearer, I want to exhort you that if you're not right in God's sight, know that you will go to heaven if you died. Please come to him, the Savior, who without stretched hand says, come and I'll give you rest. Won't you do that as we stand and sing?